On August 18, 1966, Mao Zedong was poised to initiate a seismic shift in China's history, the Cultural Revolution. We now know that this movement would tragically lead to the deaths of at least half a million people. But in the preceding three years, Mao had been strategically laying the groundwork for this upheaval. He had discreetly ousted Beijing officials not aligned with his vision and commissioned provocative articles to stir the dissatisfaction among Chinese youth, the very demographic he aimed to galvanize. If we go back a bit further, we can trace the roots of the Cultural Revolution back to the aftermath of the Great Leap Forward. Launched in 1958, this ambitious campaign aimed to rapidly modernize China's economy and society. But its flawed planning and forceful implementation led to one of the worst famines in Chinese history. The catastrophic fallout of the Great Leap Forward shook Mao's standing within the party. Members who were once his supporters started to question his leadership, actively working to mitigate the damage he had caused. There was a growing realization among his followers. Mao, the architect of modern China, might not be the right leader for its future. This was unacceptable. And Mao had to cement his legacy one way or another. By 1966, Mao had found his instrument for resurgence, the Red Guards, a faction of fervent young supporters born from the brewing discontent. All that remained was for Mao to make his decisive move, which would unfold on the 18th of August, 1966. Mao Zedong, clad in an olive-green military uniform, steps out to a sea of fervent admirers. The moment he waves, the crowd erupts in an ecstatic uproar. Until now, Mao's endorsement of the Red Guards was only known through written proclamations. For many, he was a distant figure, fueling doubts about the urgency of their cause. But witnessing him in the flesh transformed him from an abstract leader into a tangible, almost godlike figure. In the ensuing moments, Mao's presence electrified the crowd. He personally greeted around 1,500 Red Guards, simultaneously acknowledging the 800,000 loyalists gathered with his charismatic waves. Among the Red Guards, a petite figure emerged, Song Bin Bin. Despite her small stature, her eyes radiated with a fierce intensity. Mao, with a warm smile, inquired about her name, exchanging brief pleasantries. Then, seizing the gravity of the moment, he imparted a simple yet profound directive. Be valiant and fight. This endorsement was the catalyst the Red Guards needed. Just seven days later, the Langan Market Massacre erupted, igniting a decade-long purge that obliterated China's historical and cultural heritage and claimed at least half a million lives. Far from the chaos, in Hong Kong, the Cherawatnon family of CP Group 
watched the collapse with growing apprehension. Dannon and his father were convinced that China was on the brink of rapid economic decline, potentially leading to a yearning for change. And they were right. By 1976, the political upheavals placed Deng Xiaoping in power, the man who would be credited for opening China's economic doors. And with it, the opportunity that CP had been waiting for. From 1UP Media, this is Empire. Episode 4 of a five-part series. China is in our name. It is hard to overstate the affinity that CP had for China. More than just the allure of a vast economic market, it was the fulfillment of Danan's father's lifelong dream to reconnect and contribute to their ancestral land. This deep-rooted commitment was embodied in a unique way, the names of his four sons. When his eldest son was born, he was named Zhengmin, followed by Damin, Zhongmin, and finally, Guomin. By weaving together the first characters of their names, Zheng, Da, Zhong, Kuo, a meaningful phrase emerged, translating to Fair Great China. This choice was a nod to his father's past business ventures in China, known as Zheng Da, combined with Zhong Kuo, the Mandarin term for China. In the Chirawatnan family, Each name carried a piece of a vision, a vision deeply tied to the land that they come from. In this respect, perhaps no other founder has woven their heritage so deeply into their legacy as Chaek Chor and the CP Group. Today's China is a lucrative market for the CP Group, accounting for an astonishing one-third of its total revenue. CP China's reach is vast, with over 200 subsidiaries sprawled across seven diverse business lines, including transportation, telecommunications, and pharmaceuticals. The sheer breadth of CP China's operations could make one question if there's a method to the madness. Yet, ironically, it precisely reflects their overall strategy to build goodwill with the Chinese government. To understand, Consider the complexities of retail in China. Opening a single supermarket or convenience store can be a bureaucratic labyrinth, typically requiring coordination across at least six different government departments, a process that drags on for over six months. CP, however, manages to navigate these bureaucratic waters with remarkable speed often securing necessary approvals in just half the usual time. 
This efficiency is largely attributed to the group's strategic approach to investments. By engaging in a variety of government-led projects, including those yielding lower profits, CP has cultivated a reservoir of goodwill. This approach not only accelerates administrative processes, but also cements their presence across the nation. To date, CP has invested in almost all of China's 23 provinces and four municipalities, in some cases being the first to invest in these regions. One notable example is the Super Brand Mall in Shanghai, developed by a subsidiary of the CP Group. It was a half-billion-dollar investment that ran into a two-year delay. Few would have been as willing as CP to adopt a long-term perspective on its economic potential. But this approach cumulatively reaps massive dividends, enabling CP to extend its well-established business verticals, including its flagship, CP Foods, into the heart of China. In fact, some industry observers even credit CP's foray into Chinese poultry production as a transformative force in the country's dietary habits. With the introduction of CP food technology, once expensive proteins were made affordable to the masses. Eventually, this innovation would be swiftly replicated with remarkable precision by local Chinese firms. One such competitor is the New Hope Group, which has grown to overshadow CP China itself, a compelling narrative that we'll delve into in a future series. It was the 1980s in Shenzhen, China, and Deng Xiaoping had recently risen to the position of paramount leader, the foremost political figure in the People's Republic of China. Unbeknownst to Deng at the time, his sweeping economic reforms would catapult China into becoming the world's second-largest economy. Deng's reform spotlighted four cities in particular, Shenzhen, Zhuhai, Swatow, and Amoy, designated as special economic zones. It was in these hubs that most foreign investors would converge. Just a year prior, in 1979, Danin had visited China, witnessing firsthand the remnants of the Cultural Revolution. It became clear to him that the nation, especially its youth, was ready to move past the era of civil instability. Leveraging family connections, CP Group obtained the necessary permits to establish its foothold in Shenzhen. Holding the certificate marked with the number 001, Danin realized the significance of their achievement. CP Group was the first foreign investor in this new economic landscape. With this, CP China was officially born. And with an already established base in vertical farming, CP leveraged their vast experience and kickstarted their venture with remarkable precision. A decade earlier, Danin had traveled to America to bring back a special chicken breed, the broilers, known for their rapid growth, swelling to 40 times their size in just two months. 
This breed's consistency allowed for the mass rearing of thousands of chickens, significantly upscaling each farm's output. At the core of their operation, they built a comprehensive vertical integration hub featuring an egg incubation facility, a feed plant, and a slaughterhouse, all in close proximity, marking their initial step towards becoming the kitchen of Thailand. With ambitions for China, this model was set to raise them to the stature of the kitchen of the world, provided that they could mirror their success in this new market. And at first, everything moved smoothly. In Shenzhen, their initial target, the launch was flawless. A feed plant came online within a year, facilitating the expansion of chicken and hog farms. CP's hallmark vertical integration model was rapidly deployed in Shenzhen, a significant leap in their international journey. The swift success fueled a focused drive for expansion, replicating their model across China's economic zones. Yet, as they ventured further, subtle signs began to emerge, hinting at the complexities of expansion within China's unique business landscape. A notable instance unfolded in Swato, where CP's business interests diversified beyond their core of food production. Here, they ventured into unexpected territory, a carpet factory. Triggered by a reported shortage of hotel carpets, CP seized the opportunity keen to capitalize on this new market. Observers, however, noted this move could be more than just a business expansion. It was, instead, the start of CP's nuanced relationship building in China, a strategic dance that would continue to the next century. As they continued to sweep across the zones, they eventually set their sights on Shanghai, the largest commercial city in China. It's likely the early 1980s, and all negotiations were failing. CP had originally thought that expansion into Shanghai would be smooth sailing, but it's proving to be an impossible task. The mayor at the time, Wang Daohan, was frustrated. I'm sorry, but raising 10,000 chickens on a single farm sounds preposterous. Just walk around China and you'll see that it's impossible. The CP executives were equally frustrated. That's the thing, Mayor Wang. We've actually done it. Those farms exist in Thailand. And Shanghai would be the perfect place to bring the chickens across. There's the right demand for it. Mayor Wang might have held his laughter. He was familiar with Thailand. At least, he thought he was. History to him puts Thailand as a backwater village. If anything, maybe they needed his help to modernize. Mayor Wang paused, his gaze briefly lingering, likely reflecting on the stark contrast between the Shanghai he knew and the Thailand he had imagined. Then, with a contemplative tone, he responded, hey, You're right about one thing. Shanghai indeed has the demand. Perhaps we can take a closer look at what Bangkok has to offer. Mm -hmm. 
Now we find ourselves at Bangkok's Don Muang Airport. Stepping off the plane is a delegation of Shanghai officials, headed by the mayor. They had braced themselves for what they assumed would be a visit to a primitive village, perhaps even contemplating how they might offer assistance. But what greeted them was a revelation. Their eyes widened in disbelief as they took in the unexpected sight before them. The, this airport is massive. It must be at least a few times larger than our own. The Cultural Revolution had plunged China into a state of inertia, while Thailand had leapt forward, wholeheartedly embracing economic growth. During this era, China's rhetoric had led its citizens to believe they were far more modernized than the rest of the world. However, this illusion was starting to fade, especially for the mayor of Shanghai. Then, the delegation turned, realizing that all around them, the roads were filled with cars. Back then, the Chinese's main mode of transportation were bicycles. Cars were a luxury, and yet, luxury lined the roads of Thailand. Unable to keep his thoughts to himself any longer, an official blurted, We have to admit, we thought Thailand was a backwards place. We were obviously wrong. The team was quickly whisked into the rural heartlands of Thailand, where the Shanghai delegation witnessed a marvel. Through controlling for feed, medication, and chicken breed, a single farmer indeed was managing a flock of 10,000 chickens. Under the dim light of a meeting room, negotiations that seemed stagnant suddenly gained momentum. It was decided within days that poultry production wouldn't be the only thing they would introduce into Shanghai, but along with it, hog raising and meat processing as well. The success in Shanghai elevated CP China, opening more doors in Sichuan and the Northeast, eventually transforming it to become one of the largest feed producers in China. But as with all deals back then, CP China's fast execution would require them to dabble in other business. And one of them will take them for a ride, quite literally. As the 1980s progressed, CP continued to thrive. Behind the scenes, pivotal discussions with Shanghai, China's bustling commercial hub, were underway. However, an emerging concern was casting a new shadow over these talks. China, at this juncture, was in dire need of foreign currency. Shanghai, China's trading center, was feeling the pinch. You might be curious, why was foreign currency so crucial for China? Accumulating foreign currency reserves serves several strategic purposes. It helps stabilize a nation's own currency, offers a cushion against cash outflows during economic crises, and facilitates smoother international trade. These reserves are vital in bolstering investor confidence, something China was eager to attract. To achieve this, China embarked on an aggressive export strategy, aiming to trade goods for foreign currency. 
This backdrop set the stage for an intriguing suggestion that came from Danin's cousin. Given China's reliance on bicycles, introducing motorcycles to the mainland seemed like a promising venture. It presented a dual opportunity for CP. Not only could the motorcycle business be lucrative, but it could also help Shanghai accumulate the much-needed foreign currency. But as you've probably realized by now, this begs the question, why would any mainland Chinese pay for a motorbike in foreign currency? It would take Danin a visit back to Swatow to unlock the insight. Hey, watch it! Danin had a close shave. The streets of Swatow were different from what Danin had remembered. The town is now peppered with honking and sputtering engines. As the motorbike closely missed Danin, he observed its carriage laden with goods from vegetables to live hogs. Something unique had happened here. While motorbikes weren't uncommon, there shouldn't have been that many either. Danin realized someone was bringing them over. Likely through conversations and observing the people at Suato, he realized the reason was obvious. Suato was home to a sizable population of overseas workers who, during the time abroad, had experienced the convenience of motorcycles. When China reopened its borders, many of these individuals returned home, bringing their motorcycles with them. This observation led to a moment of revelation for Danin. To the returning Chinese, the benefits of a motorcycle were obvious. They had experienced its benefits firsthand, and now many couldn't live without it. An epiphany struck Danin. He might have just found their solution. Calling a meeting in Hong Kong with a bike manufacturer based in Shanghai, Danin shared what he observed with the team. An officer in the meeting seemed convinced that motorbikes may be a great idea. But now, the question is, what model? Okay, Danin. So, what should we make? We make what's familiar to them. I propose this model from Shanghai. The team looks up and some quietly gasp. Back then, a motorbike whose name translated as happiness could be found around Shanghai. But if you're familiar with happiness, you would know that the technology was 40 years behind, copying Western motors from the 1940s. Another officer smirks, likely thinking that Danin should have stayed within the food industry. Resisting as best as he could, he mocks. Should we export them as antiques? I don't know how else to put it, but they are slow and there's no way we can sell them. There was a good chance he was right. Happiness did not seem like it would last in Shanghai either. But despite these reservations, the team eventually greenlit CP's import of the Happiness motorcycle. The decision could have stemmed from the attractively low cost of the deal. Or perhaps there was a hint of curiosity among the team members. They might have been intrigued to see how the situation would unfold if challenges arose. This approach aligns with a common saying in parts of Asia 
often referred to as watching the play. It's a phrase that encapsulates the idea of observing how a potentially risky or uncertain situation plays out from a safe distance. In the early 1980s, Sharon Pokapand, or CP, embarked on a bold venture, launching a motorcycle campaign through newspaper advertisements. At first glance, the initiative seemed destined for failure. Not only were they promoting an outdated motorcycle model, but their payment system was also unusually complex. In a country where transactions were typically straightforward, CP's approach required overseas payments to a Hong Kong account, with the motorcycles, dubbed happiness, delivered on the mainland. This convoluted process stood in stark contrast to the simplicity Chinese consumers were accustomed to. Yet, against all odds, sales gradually began to pick up. The motorcycle, based on technology from the 1940s, was an unlikely choice for the modern market. Yet, its cost-effectiveness rendered it attractive, particularly to those Chinese returning from overseas. Accustomed to the advantages of motorcycles over bicycles, they valued convenience over modernity. Moreover, the purchase process allowed them to clear their foreign currency locally, a win-win. This strategy proved successful, leading to the rapid sale of approximately 20,000 motorbikes. And of course, the significant influx of foreign currency quickly caught the attention of Shanghai officials. Impressed by CP's achievement, they proposed a joint venture with the city to manufacture motorcycles. Danin, paying tribute to his father, Ekchor, chose the name Shanghai Ekchor Motorcycle Company. As the 1990s drew to a close, CP China was soaring. It had become one of the largest foreign investors in the country, transforming it into a colossus across various sectors. Its feed business, now a titan, emerged as a top importer of feed in China. But CP's influence didn't stop there. In April 1990, they brought a dash of Western flair to Chinese television with a Chiatai variety show. This casual Western-style talk show captivated the nation, drawing in half a billion viewers weekly and becoming a cultural phenomenon. Then, of course, there was the Shanghai Ekchor Motorcycle Company. Originating in the 1980s, it had seen a remarkable evolution. By 1985, their first factory was producing modern motorcycles, equipped with technology licensed from Honda. The model named Happiness would become a brand, expanding into a diverse lineup of 12 models. Demand for their motorcycles would continue to surge, with annual sales reaching half a million before doubling in the near future. And CP would even start a project to build a mega mall in Shanghai. Along this journey, CP cultivated significant goodwill within China culminating in a moment with Deng Xiaoping. Deng's praise was one of the highest order. I want the tens of millions of overseas Chinese around the world to follow your example. 
CP's adept navigation through the Chinese market landscape made them a sought-after partner. Foreign entities eager to tap into China's potential turned to CP, resulting in multiple joint ventures. This included a licensing agreement to brew Heineken beer. In the late 1990s, CP was in every way the China success story that all foreign companies sought to emulate. So, why doesn't the group today look anything like the titan it was decades ago? Why did CP sell their brewery? Why was their motorcycle venture fully acquired by a Japanese entity? And why did the construction of the Mega Mall come to an abrupt halt? That is coming up next. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, Episode 4 of a five-part series. China is in our name. Next on Empires, we return to Thailand and explore the final pillars of CP's kingdom in distribution and telecommunications, before learning how everything comes crashing down when the Thai bot collapses. Follow us so you won't miss out on episode 4 of our five-part series, Tom Yung King Crisis. Empires is a one-up media original, produced and written by Guang Jin, edited by Alex, audio experience by Ethan Sam, additional engineering by Ashley from One Up Media, and narrated by Luis Cruz and Claire Bernal. International research by Sonia, Kuyet, and Jiamin from One Up Media. A quick word on our reenactments and dramatizations. While we can't know exactly what they say, think, or feel at the moment. It is all based on research. Thank you for listening.